Hello, and welcome to Breaking Utopia. This is Chapter 1, The Papermaker. Huxwell was an exceptionally large city situated a couple miles off the coast of the Silent Sea. It fit a population of 9,000, not including their rel slaves. Inside its tall walls was one of the most beautiful structures in the territory. The head of government in the home of the Tizzo himself, Kentara Palace. It was named after the first Tizzo's wife, Mariana Kentara, who by all accounts was loved by her people and her husband, Tizzo Hugo Lestere. Its major exports were weaponry and textiles, along with a plethora of luxury goods. The concrete streets, illuminated and functioning on steam power and brass cogs, were always crowded with steam carriages and mounted Kelgriff, pushing their way through the busy roadways. Among the chaos of the busy city lived an unusually unassuming man. His name was Tuck Infernoon, and he, as unassuming as he may be, was the most important person in Huxwell. He lived in a cramped little apartment on the second floor of a butcher's shop. He awoke every morning to the sound of machinery priming up and slicing through bone. He never minded it too much as it became his rooster over time. His wife, though, would resort to taking a broom from their tiny kitchen pantry and leaning out their window to smack the butchers below. It never resulted in any change. Today, though, as the saws began to buzz below and gently shake the apartment's floor, Tuckin was surprised with the thud at the bedroom door. He groggily wiped the grime from his eyes and turned to his wife beside him. Ignore it, my love, just ignore it. She groaned into her pillow. Another thud against their door and Tuckin began to pull his body up from the bed. If I didn't know any better, I'd mistake our children for burglars, he said, rubbing the lethargy from his face. They are burglars. Burglars of my sleep, Morgan, his wife, said, stretching out along the bed with a sigh. Finally, the door burst open, and two small girls swarmed the room. One with red hair and pale skin, along with light blue eyes, landed on Morgan. And the other, with hair as dark as a crow, pounced on Tuckin. My girls, my girls, Tuckin said, gripping the black-haired one tight in a hug. Save us from this beast who has been banging on our door, he joked coyly. That was us, Daddy, the red-headed one giggled. Who turned my innocent little girls into door-bashing beasts, Tuckin said, wrestling the one in his arms. The pair giggled as Morgan climbed up from her rest. She held the red-haired one in her arms and brushed her hair with her fingers, trying to clean up what her daughter's pillow must have done during the night. Are you going on your walk today, Daddy? The raven-haired one asked, looking up to him from his chest. Tuckin looked over at his wife cautiously, who only gave a subtle nod in retaliation. I'm... Why, yes, little love. I might need to today. Can Clara and I come today? We want to see the outside of the city, the little one asked, hopping up and down on Tuckin's lap. Oh... I don't know about that, Abney, Tuckin replied, as his heart sank slightly. It's not as safe as it is in here. But it's so boring, Abney said, crossing her arms in aggravation. Miss Ochinger said, fresh air might do Abney and me some good, said the red-headed Clara as her mom tugged at her knotted hair. Miss Sojinger is just trying to find a way for you to stop knocking on her door and asking her for more treats. Morgan jumped in as she began to wipe some unknown gunk off of Clara's face. Well, I think she's right anyways, 
Abney said, trying her best to put on a commanding and powerful tone before huffing and looking towards the window. She set her eyes on an advertisement placed along the city's wall for Darpington Industries, new and improved automaton helper. Abney remembered hearing of Darpington's first automaton a couple years ago from a girl who used to live on the third floor. Most people just brought a rel from the market. It was much cheaper and they didn't break down as much. Abney wondered what happened to that girl. She, as well as the rest of her family, just vanished from the apartment one night. Nobody ever seemed to want to talk about it when Abney asked about them. Tuckin looked over at his wife again, hoping for an answer to this situation. Morgan sighed and looked down at Clara as she dragged her thumb across her cheek. Abney, maybe you're old enough to go with your dad, she says hesitantly. But Clara, you and I are going to spend some time together. I think we might need to take a trip over to the Emporium and get you something to clean up with. Whoa! Abney said with a gasp of awe as the city's hatch door creaked open, revealing the greens of nature outside the walls. Tuckin pushed into his satchel their passes and thanked the hatch officers before carrying on with Abney. <laughs> Pretty cool, huh? He said, pulling Abney in tight as they walked. Clara's gonna freak when I tell her about all this. Abney shivered with joy. Tuckin chuckled. <laughs> well, don't make her too jealous. I'm sure she isn't too excited spending all day having your mom rant at her about how dirty she gets. Abney laughed, imagining such a thought. Clara just likes breaking down her toys and remaking them, Daddy. She never really thinks about how dirty it can get her. Well, remind me to stop buying her the expensive toys then. Her little projects cost me a lot of coin, little love. Tuckin carried on down the crowned road with Abney in tow. The pair passed the city's large metal hulks of industrial farms, smoke bursting out the top like geysers, along with small shanty villages sprouted up along the road of the poor who couldn't cut it in the city. These were the parts Tuckin hoped to hide from his daughter. They came upon one of the small shanty villages with a crudely painted plank of wood doing its best to play the role of a sign. The wood read, Huxwell's Slops. By the seedier and regulars, it was typically simply called the Slops. The Slops was one of the larger of the shanties. The makeshift housing of the impoverished was at the front of the town, but spanned into the trees behind it. The housing seemed to make a dirt road that traveled towards a thousand-year-old concrete structure from the time of the ancients. Most buildings like this fell apart hundreds of years ago, and by this point were mixed thoroughly into the soil. Abney, Tuckin said as he gripped her tight walking down the dirt path and keeping his eyes to the ground as they passed the slop's population. I'm going to need you to promise something while we are here, okay? Abney's stomach traveled to her throat as they pushed through. There are some things your sister doesn't need to know. Hell, not even Mommy needs to know all the details, he said solemnly. Mommy knows I go on walks, and she knows what I bring back, and why. His eyes grew very serious as he stopped her near the front of the archaic building. She doesn't want to know where I stop on my walks, though, okay? He said, needing a response. Well, why are we here, Dad? Abney said, not shaking from joy or excitement anymore, but of true fear. 
Tekken pulled her in for a hug and told her to wait by the front door before entering the rundown warehouse of the past. Abney kept her eyes to the broken and battered concrete floor. Two grimy men who wore ragged and torn clothing stood by either side of the molding makeshift door. One, with a hacking cough, spoke up to the frightened girl. <laughs> Your father, he's a good man. Don't be worried for him, little one. Nobody inside would hurt him. Yeah, ain't no fools in there. Your dad is safe and sound, so are you, kiddo. We got your back. The second guard, with a large wound on his face, added. Abney nodded, still keeping her eyes to the ground and tugging gently on her sleeve for comfort. The hacking guard knelt behind her and could hear her silently yelp in fear as his knees hit the floor. We kind of scary, too, ain't we? He said softly, as he could with his gravelly voice. In that city of yours, everyone usually looks a little more clean, I bet. We ain't monsters, though, sweetheart, I promise you. We all just down our luck. Just a little more so than your daddy. Abney didn't understand that. How was her dad down on his luck? He was an events balderizer, whatever that was. Before she could think any longer on this, she... She heard his voice appear behind her. Get away from her! Tuckin tried his best to put on a steel-bodied exterior for the two guards. This did nothing to have them fear him, but they kindly backed away from young Abney. For Abney, it was one of the very few times she heard her father speak without a soft and warm tone. She turned to see him holding a large bag over his shoulder. He looked back and forth between the two guards with daggers in his eyes. We're leaving he said, gripping her hand and pulling her from the warehouse. Daddy, what's in there? She said, looking at his back, as the bag jostled on top of it. It was a bad idea to bring you, Tuckin muttered to himself as he kept a quick pace out of the slops. Daddy, Abney said worryingly. Little love, I'll explain later, okay? He said, darting his eyes to her. Abney turned away from his piercing emerald eyes. Her father had never been so serious with her before. Tuckin was always a father filled with love. She couldn't comprehend this version of her father. Morgan and Clara stood side to side in the very cramped little kitchen cleaning dishware and preparing for dinner later in the day. Morgan poured a very calculated amount of water from a bucket on each dish as the rambunctious little redhead vigorously cleaned. Clara wore a blue dress with a tan leather belt wrapped around her waist. It was new, one of the three they bought from the Emporium just an hour earlier. Yet already the oblivious child had flung enough dirty water around with her frantic scrubbing that she already dirtied it up. Morgan found herself with a raging headache beating her temples as if they were machine drums formed from pure frustration. Just as the pressure in her head grew, the two adventurers of her family swung the door to the small apartment open. Morgan peeked her head out from behind the kitchen wall and toward the entrance. Instantly, she saw an odd scene. Abney quickly rushed to her in Clara's room, holding her body tight and her head down. Tuckin, on the other hand, had a large bag in one hand and a grim face of consternation and concern. What happened? Morgan said with grit teeth. She looked out of the kitchen and into the living room toward Tuckin. She's just shook up, Tuckin said, hoping to ease the woman he loved. 
What happened to my baby, Tuck? Quickly, she turned back to the kitchen entrance and saw little Clara peeking her eyes out from the threshold. Go check on your sister, Morgan demanded. Clara sprinted toward her and Abney's door and closed it. She didn't get hurt or nothing. She's just spooked. I swear, Tuckin was exacerbated by the whole ordeal. He never wanted to seem like a bad guy in his daughter's eyes. He felt as if he shattered something deep in his daughter and only hoped it wasn't her innocence. That's something he knew he couldn't repair. I kept her outside while I traded a couple small bits of knowledge to Kingstrom. I didn't want her seeing how I got anything, and the guards, I think, kind of scared her. <laughs> well, of course, Morgan said dumbfounded. She hasn't seen how bad things can be here, how tight coin can be. You should have been by her side the whole time, Morgan said with frustration, pounding her head harder than before. What, and have her see her father trading city secrets for some damn food? Tuckin couldn't begin to think on that. No way was his daughter going to know he sold guard patrol intel, among others, to bandits. If it meant her feeling safe, then yes, damn it, Morgan said, throwing her foot to the floor, trying to look bigger than Tuckin. I just wanted her to see the outside for once, get air that wasn't soaked in smog. Morgan's voice slowly deflated into a sad croak as her head fell to the floor. Then you shouldn't have had her come with me, Tuckin replied, grabbing his work ID from the coffee table. He turned back to his wife and gently glided his finger across her folded arms. She'll... she'll be okay. When I get home, I'll talk to her. She knows she's safe with us, Tuckin said as his lips touched her forehead. I love you, Morgan. I love you too she said, as her lavender eyes moved up to meet his. Tuckin traversed through Huxwell streets. He always felt tiny between the large concrete buildings. Some shot steam and smoke from their chimneys, others were simply decorated with brash, boisterous Arkan sigils. Nothing in the business district of Huxwell was very original. Every stone was the pale and bland color of concrete, every building held the same nationalistic emblems, everything was Arkan. Tuckin never really thought about that. Usually, Tuckin was tunnel-visioned on getting to work, looking through the next day's articles and highlighting what he believed the Arkan Republic would wish to be removed before print. That was his job. Nothing else mattered until he got home. Today, though, today was something different. He noticed the vapidness of the structures around him, the conceited emblems, sigils, and flags that hung from every building. Finally he noticed something he never had noticed before today. Something buzzed around every street corner he turned, something that the flow of traffic around him seemed to not question as they went about their day. Tuckin heard a staticky voice speaking. Remember to listen and follow all orders given to you by a patrolling soldier. They are here for your protection. If any order by a patrolling officer is not followed, that officer has authority by our honorable Tizzo to enact his power over the unruly citizen. It was uncanny, as if a veil had drifted off of Tuckin's eyes and ears as it continued. Citizens, remember, all who work today must report in by your designated time. 
All supervisors have been instructed and trained to interrogate any late arrivals. If a patrol officer has not done so, this is to protect our city from insurgents and societal leeches. If you love our city, you will take care of it through your occupation, through your work. All around him, as it buzzed in his ear, nobody stopped moving. He half expected to see someone in the crowd looking as startled as he did, or holding their ears trying to keep the loud, static voice from seeping in. All he saw was bodies marching down the street like ceremonial soldiers. Their eyes were glassed over and their feet almost seemed to step to the drum of each other's. Tucken let the crowd whip by him, creating a small hole in the crowd that was only home to him. He wondered. When he was tunnel-visioned on the way to work, did he look like this? Did anyone else ever notice? Tucken tried to hold onto this thought and pushed back into the crowd to race to work. This was important to think about, but so was making coin for the family. He would have to think about it later. The Republic Information Building was a small building compared to the other government structures in the city. It was also the least upkept one being considered one of the lower priorities of the Republic security, being the highest priority there is, Arkan education and nationalism being second followed closely by a strong economy and several others until you get to public information. The Arkan Republic, of course, knew the power of information though, and it was Tuckin's job to take in that information and decide what the people were allowed to hear. He would sometimes freshen up an event, make it more palatable for the people, or entirely black out a whole event. It all depended on the severity. If Tucken got it wrong, he had no clue what would happen. Tucken only knew one other person who failed to keep the people happy by not hiding something. That person was his old colleague, Cullian Vantis. Cullian worked at the desk next to him, and they typically worked together on their work, helping each other find the right way to touch up the event. One day, Cullian was tasked with more events than he could handle, and rushed through them too quickly. He must have skimmed through too fast a very important event log, and didn't black out major details, because the next day, Tuckin found his desk wiped of any trace of Cullian. Supervisors only stated that they were told by the Arkin head of information Cullion was sent out of the city for fieldwork. Tuckin walked up the cracked concrete steps into the building. He clocked in with the front desk and climbed to the stairs to the boulderizer offices. It was a small office space with only a few private offices. Three officers were held by the Arkin overseer, Herrick Grumsby, a military man who watched over the whole operation. Tuckin's manager, Shay Rives, who of course did, as most managers do, hire, fire, distribute projects handed down to him by Grumsby, and plan the office parties no one wanted to come to. Lastly was the lead supervisor, Frenna Young. Her job was to make sure everyone completed their projects and stayed on task. She was the face most boulderizers saw every day. Tuckin entered the employee desk area, surrounded on all sides by his supervisor's private offices. On the far end, he could see Herrick Grunsby looking out the window to the Kentara towering above all Huxwell. Mr. Fernoon, a soft voice said close behind him. Uh, Miss Young, good morning, Tuckin said quickly, turning around. You did really clever work on your events yesterday. The Armister tax riot could have had the public stirring, 
she said with a breathy laugh. Tuckin gave an uncomfortable chuckle and rubbed his neck awkwardly. <laughs> Thank you, Miss Young. I hope there isn't any more bad news out of Arminster today, is there? Frenna Young quickly skimmed through a large folder she held close to her chest before looking back at Tuckin. Looks like it's all quiet at the moment. Not much today that Shay gave me to hand out. Besides, well, more intel on Willem's Falmouth Forest event. Grumsby did want to talk to you personally, though. Think he might have something special. She said as she began to step away with a wink. Tuckin knew what that wink meant. It was not uncommon in his workplace to fear a conversation with Grumsby. It was a wink saying, good luck with that, in the most sarcastic of ways. There was usually no good luck talking to Grumsby, and Tuckin feared the worst. Tuckin turned back to the old military man staring out the window. He noticed now he held his wood-carved pipe in his mouth and was coaxing a fire out of it. His other hand palmed the top as he slowly baked the tobacco inside. Tuckin puffed up his chest and stirred up the energy he had into courage and pulled his feet forward. The smoke began to pour out of the pike. A whiff hit Tuckin as he tried to wave the fumes away before they reached his nostrils to no avail. It smelled of dark honey and tartberry. Officer Grumsby, Tuckin said as he approached, trying not to choke. The officer took the pipe from his lips and kept his eyes out the window. You see that down there, kid? The old officer said, gesturing to the street below. Tuckin looked down to see a man stopped on the street by two guards. Whatever conversation they were having seemed to be strongly heated as the guard were inches from the man's face. Factory worker. You can tell from the dirt and the sweat. Along with that jumpsuit. You missed it. Earlier, work was trying to help a rel. He must have overworked. Enforcer came and took him. Probably put him down if he's not worth anything. He took a puff of his pipe. Tuckin held his breath. Waste of a slave, if you ask me. Could at least put him behind some desk. Hell, maybe could have got rid of you a long time ago. The old veteran laughed heartily and jabbed Tuckin's shoulder hard. Tuckin gave a smile and nodded, trying his best to seem agreeable. Either way, worthless sods like this man. It's why we do what we do. Keep the people from agreeing with the damn idiots. Am I right? I thought what we did was inform the public. But in a positive way that keeps them happy. Tuckin answered as the officer began to finally turn to face the unassuming man. He took one last draw from his pipe, releasing the toxic cloud from his lips towards the shrimpy worker. Well, yes, I'd agree to a degree. The butch military man said with his teeth grit, and his lips trying their best to form a smile. Yet, also, to keep the people in line to keep them agreeing on what's good, you understand. Grumsy asked, waving his ember-ridden pipe to Tuckin. Of course, sir. Tuckin knew it was not worth it to question motives anymore. Be agreeable, that was always his strong suit. Tuckin was never one to make a problem with his superiors, nor anyone for that matter. Today he met his limit for the year with Abney. 
that was about all the disagreeableness he could handle for a while. At this point, Abney was beginning to weigh heavy on him. He was worried whatever point Grumsby was heading towards would weigh on him as well. Did he learn what Tuckin did outside the city walls? Grumsby put the chamber of the pipe up to his lips and gave a good blow to it. Ash and hot embers flew out from the pipe like a volcano and clouded the air around the two. The officer pulled a small pouch out of his pocket and began stuffing the pipe once again with wet, sticky tobacco as he let out a thick cough. <coughs> well, at any rate, you did some good work on that Arminster event. How did you word that one public release again? I stated the people of Arminster came down with a manic episode caused by the pressure and stress of the insurrectionists approaching the town's borders. Tuckin stated with waning pride. Grumsby gave a thick and cough-ridden laugh. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Perfect for stoking the people against the rebels, as well as pushing more of our smaller and independent towns into full unification. Wonderful work. Sir, aren't all villagers and towns in the territory under the Tizzo? Tuckin asked in genuine intrigue. Well, yes, of course, but for decades we allowed them to run independently, especially after the War of the Divide. The Republic had to bolster our manpower before we could hold full control over our dominion. We simply allowed them to temporarily control for some time, and now we're unifying once more, Grunsby explained with joy. None of that is, of course, concern, though. I got to task for you, he said, presenting a folder holding the Arcan insignia embossed into it in line with the colors of the Republic gold and maroon. This folder comes from the Kentara's confidential library, where events in progress and events that have passed which the Tizzo wishes to hold confidential are kept. The Tizzo is allowing one folder, folder 22, to be released to the public. Grumsby said with a stern and aggressive, serious voice, I'm choosing you to look over. Censor, touch up the contents inside. The wrinkled hand holding the pristine folder reached out. Now can I trust you with this, Fernoon? The hand's owner asked. Tuckin was stunned with the offer. He was struck between worlds, one where he learned he was a very vital asset for the Republic, someone they trusted enough with such a sensitive document, and in the other... He could see how this could go horribly, terribly wrong if he made one tiny mistake. You can trust me, sir, Tuckin said, taking the folder from the wrinkled man's hand. Instantly, his body recoiled from his own actions and his stomach sank. Why would you do this to yourself? What the hell is wrong with you? He asked himself, wanting to beat his own head. Am I really that curious, that recklessly curious to know what's inside? I knew you'd be up for it. Good lad, Grumsby said, giving a manly thud of his fist to Tuckin's shoulder. Grumsby nodded and walked away toward his office, all along the way relighting his whittled pipe. 
Tuckin held the folder for a moment longer and looked out to the situation on the street below. The factory worker laid on the cold ground, bloodied and half-conscious. Tuckin could make out a twitch of his left leg and right arm, as if his body was trying its best to stay awake, but just couldn't make it to the finish line. His nose was rapidly becoming a flowing river of blood. Tuckin knew that if this happened earlier, during the morning rush, they would give him his own personal circle. As he stared out to the body and watched it as the guards picked the body off of the bloody ground, something caught his eye that he found most curious. Upon the blood-flowing nose of the factory worker, a beautiful, deep blue butterfly landed to rest. It flapped its wings, and for some odd reason, Tuckin felt something. It was feeling he didn't quite understand a cold comfort that raised the hair on his arms. It was grim yet loving, icy, yet comforting. Something inside Tuckin told him that this butterfly was for him, not the man it laid its wings upon. A commanding thought pierced into his brain as if it was a foreign internal threat. Look at the number. It rang inside his head, ricocheting between neurons. Look at the number, look at the number. As it grew louder and louder, Tuckin flipped over the folder and found a dry stamp on the bottom corner, folder number 23. The ceaseless thought subsided instantly. He looked back to the street and found the scene was empty. The guards and body had seemed to have left the scene with only the bloodied cobblestone to tell that they were once there. Tuckin looked back at the folder that was supposed to be folder 22. Fear began to grip him. The two worlds that he held before became one, the worst one. Maybe Grumsby misspoke. Maybe he held the right folder. Maybe he held secrets that were never to be seen. Secrets only for the Tizzo and his advisor's eyes. Tuckin could have spoken to Grumsby. He could have asked him if this was the right folder, never having opened it, never having looked at the secrets not meant for a simple man's eyes. He could have burned them, torn them to shreds, thrown them to the wind. Tuckin did none of these things. In his hands was a curiosity. Anything could be in there. They could be nothing at all. Reports on financial plans, or what food the Tizzo prefers when company is over. Yet it could be something that holds the legs of the Republic firm. The way for Tuckin to know was to open it. Tuckin rushed over to his desk and hurriedly opened the folder. Adrenaline coursed through him like fire on gasoline. He read faster than he ever had before. His eyes grew wider. With every sentence he read, reports from the War of the Divide, letters from the Tizzo to his generals, from them and now, total casualty reports. Nothing was good here. Tuckin found documents that laid bare the true anatomy of the Republic he called home. The Arkham Republic made the war seem glorious. From Tuckin's knowledge, it was a war to stamp out an aggressive force trying to expand east into the Arkham territory. The Purse Confederacy against the Arkham Republic. It was a lie. In the documents Tuckin found, he found the truth written by multiple higher parties, reports, letters, even journal entries written by the Tizzo, Advisor Kulo, and even famed hero of the war, Commander Aldous Hine. The aggressors were the Arkans. The Arkans wanted more. The farms were not producing enough on Arkan soil, and the population seemed to be outgrowing their own production. There was more, though. 
Tizzo Wilhelm Rainley believed he held true divinity over the expansive West. He believed the Arkans held destined rights over what they saw as the empty wastes. In the Tizzo's own words, expand our territory for the sake of our destiny. Tizzo Wilhelm Rainley luckily died near the end of the war at the Battle of Raging Knox. Tuckin felt reality around him shatter and go silent. Pure silence formed around him as the voices of the office grew quieter and quieter until there was nothing left but him and the folder. There wasn't much more left in the folder. A couple reports recording the peace talks that ended the War of the Divide and field reports detailing a gruesome end to the Western soldiers inside the Arkan territory who were executed as they were being escorted back to the border. There was also some papers detailing the full treaty, explained that both parties would send one's deemed exile to the divided mountains as a picket to keep either side from invading the other, a hopeful way of never enduring a gruesome war like this once again. There was one last document for Tuckin to read. He didn't know if he could read any more though, he almost felt sick by this point. His brain felt like mush swirling inside his head, though he felt it was his duty to read the last hellish document. One last document, dated two months ago on the 24th of Frelish, newer than any other document that sat inside this folder. It was a plea sent from Talion Rainley, son of the late Wilhelm Rainley, to all the clans of the Isle of Severos. It read, To all the great clans of Severos, Neftar, Gulek, Fry, Kulket, of the cold shores of Severos, I lay a decision before you which I hope you and your grand elder will agree is mutually beneficial for our lands. I ask for your great power over the sea to join with the mighty Arkan Fury and attack the western lands lorded over by Jacoba Purse and the Confederacy of Free Cities. It is with a naval might of yours we may journey safely to the Northern Bay and surprise the capital of Croy. I am more than willing of rewarding your alignment with the land and the ability to take whatever plunder you accrue in battle without scrutiny. I await the decision of the clan and your Grand Elder with humble ardor. There it was, before Tuckin's eyes. A call for war. It seemed so simple, so apathetic, as if it meant nothing to call upon brutes from the cold southern shores of Severos. There were beasts of nature who fought like devils against each other for sport. And right below, the young Tezos call to action, a response. It was dated only days ago. Young Tizzo Renly, fourth of name, the heads of the clan families have decided the Grand Elder must initiate our oldest of tradition and call the summit of clans for such a request. This, of course, may take a week too many until unity amongst the clans is struck on this decision. We shall send word of our decision as soon as it is struck. The clan summit shall start on the 17th of Avalnock, signed Elder Koth of the Neftar clan. 
Tuckin slammed the documents shut in a quiet rage. Another war for what? To follow in his father's footsteps? Was it glory? Revenge? To prove ourselves after a failed first war? Tuckin tried to map a conclusion, yet every trail in his mind landed at the same conclusion. The young Tizzo was a madman. And madmen have no need for reason. At this moment, many would simply walk away from the situation, try to forget what they saw. They would hand the folder back, say they noticed it was the wrong document, and act as if they never read a word, until their minds slowly forgot about the incident. Tuckin, though, had not been feeling his unassuming self since this morning. This reading only served to push Tuckin to his very limits of sheepish shadowing. Tuckin was exiting the shadow in a very aggressive way. Tuckin got up from his desk and moved toward the window again to peer out at where the blood-stained pavement was again. He hoped maybe the blue butterfly had returned. Maybe it could guide his mind once more. He stared down at the bloodied concrete, repeating what he saw earlier in his mind again. Tuckin didn't need the blue butterfly. Memories of earlier in the day, memories from his life in this city, were all he needed for what he was about to do. Tuckin turned his head to Grumsby's office. He had one last chance to turn around and carry on with his life as normal. The officer's door was wide open. It was a policy Grumsby took very seriously. Tuckin didn't take his last way out. Instead, he headed toward the stairs of the building, following a sign towards Speaker Control and Operations. Speaker Control and Operations was a small room, with only a few small desks covered in stains and papers. Long tubes rose through the ground and raised above their heads to hang over a table in the middle of the room. Documents scattered along the desk and tables, all describing breaking news and new laws and decrees to announce to the public. All announcements came from a small desk that faced a window out toward the street. Upon the desk sat a small microphone connected to a dozen wires that split the speaker's voice along every sidewalk speaker in Huxwell. This is where those voices that Tuckin drowned out came from. Two men rushed around the room, gripping canisters of paper as they flew out the tubes. Each one quickly scanned the document with their eyes and rushed to another young man with sunken eyes, huffing a cigarette as he spoke into the microphone solemnly. They slammed the paper down to an unkept stack and rushed back to the canister, bickering and hollering to each other about which paper took priority of which in the lineup. The small office door swung open, shooting a gust of fresh air into the muggy room. A lanky and unassuming man with spectacles entered with a folder tucked behind his back. As he witnessed the cacophony, chaos ensue before his eyes, no one gave notice to Tuckin. It was as if they were in a trance of madness and bureaucracy. Tuckin had an odd respect for the three. He loved the game of red tape and administration, but these buffoons obviously had no decorum about such a thing. Tuckin kept his work area in fine shape, and this was a far cry from Tuckin's work area. Excuse me, Tuckin stated to the room, hoping for a reply. None was given. Excuse me, Tuckin said after clearing his throat and giving himself a tone with more brash. Yet again, there was no reply. All the speakers in the city are run from this room and these three dirty little pinballs bouncing across it. Tuckin thought to himself, 
His respect oddly grew for them from that thought. He noticed the solemn-looking one ash his cigarette and pull from a large stack before reading out the paper. Tuckin coyly motioned through the labyrinth of stacks of paper and trash before reaching the desk and setting down the letter on top of the solemn speaker man's stack. Tuckin turned around to sneak out of the pandemonious office, only to be faced with one of the men closely behind him flinging his arms toward Tuckin. Tuckin quickly dropped his body to the ground in hopes of dodging what seemed to be a blow, only to find the hand of the man held an envelope that plopped onto the cigarette-smoking man's stack behind Tuckin, before quickly rushing off to take care of the canisters yet again. With that, Tuckin slipped out of the cramped office. Tuckin put a rush in his step as he headed back to his desk. He grabbed his satchel and stuffed the folder inside. He then turned himself toward the stairwell to exit and with a big breath pushed forward. A large tight bun of jet black hair came into his tunnel vision focus, stopping him quickly in his tracks. Miss Young, Tuckin said as a lump formed in his throat. Going for lunch, Frenna replied with a calm and naive demeanor. With the knowledge Tuckin now held, everyone felt more untaintable and gullible. I, I, I was, yes. Tuckin released his lie through a gritting smile. Wonderful. I was heading downstairs anyways, she said, turning toward the stairwell. They began to walk together, Tuckin with a guilt-filled hobble and Frenna with her usual upbeat step. I was very curious about this assignment you're working on, she said as they began descending the stairwell. Tuckin kept his eyes forward and focused on the Arkin propaganda lining the brick walls around them. Grunsby usually only checks our work. He never personally assigns them. He probably shouldn't, Tuckin said with a coy whisper. I'm not sure Grumsby even understands what he gave me. Oh? Miss Young turned to Tuckin with a curious gaze. I suppose it's very juicy, then? Tuckin began to regret his last words. He didn't want Frenna to get caught up in it. What would the Arkans do if they learned she knew? What would she do if he told her? Could she go to the guards, tell them what he had done? No, it was too risky to let her know. He had a family to protect, a family that he wasn't with right now, and the speaker could read that letter at any moment. With that realization, Tuckin grew wide with fear. Without a word to Frenna, he rushed down the steps, leaving the upbeat supervisor bewildered. Quickly, Tuckin rushed out the doors of his office building and into the sea of glossed-over eyes. Remember, a good worker is a time-efficient worker. Tuckin breathed a sigh of relief. The speaker hadn't yet gotten to the letter yet. He still had some time. He began to push through like a fish going against a current. Block by block, he pushed through a crowd trying to keep an ear to a loudspeaker, keeping up with what was said as he slowly moved through the crowd. He began to feel as if he let his emotions take over. How stupid was he to act so quickly on this knowledge, to not get his family out of the city before he released it, yet the people in the West won't have such a luxury when the invasion comes. Who is he to get his ducks in a row when others' lives are on the line? His mind was more split than ever. On every topic, every option, every avenue had to be weighed. What was most on his mind was, why him? Why did he have to be given this knowledge? Why did he have to bear this weight? It was too late to question. 
The deed was done, the papers were signed, stamped, and delivered. He held lives in this folder of secrets, and he had no idea what to do to save them. Tuckum was almost home. Lucky Vault Street was mostly clear, now that he was in the residential side of the city. The speaker had to be close to the reading of the letter. He was running out of time. He began to form a plan. If he could get his family to Morgan's mother's, he could try to sneak out and pull some strings with his connections in the shantytown. Maybe they will know someone who could sneak them out. It's a long shot, but it was something. There's a foreboding quiet on the street. It was the kind of quiet that ate at you, that made you look behind your shoulder. Just as the paranoia began to set in, he began to see figures moving to the end of the street. He cautiously creeped forward. There was no mistaking the maroon and gold-plated chess pieces. It wasn't the city guards, but royal Arkan soldiers. City guards were the emblem of the Arkans, of course, but the uniform was more flexible. There were no glimmering chess pieces, but a slightly thick blue and red coat under a vest of hardened leather and silk. Arkan soldiers on the battlefield wore helmets similar to what the ancients called Brody helmets, along with a more muted gray wool jacket with red trimming embroidered with a golden sigil of the Arkan Republic on the collar and left shoulder. Tuckan could tell these two men were royal soldiers due to their helmets and color pattern. Royal soldiers, sometimes called Tizzo men, wore a more flamboyant outfit than the rest of the Arkan military. They wore helmets with face masks that worked as a way to protect them from gas and other hazards as well as to distance them from other Tizzo men. If one died in the line of duty or was treated wrongly by the Tizzo staff or himself, you as a royal soldier would feel less to a mask than a man, and your focus would stay steady on the Tizza's protection. Their helmets held a crown finely etched into them. They wore the colors of Arkans brightly on their jacket that was clamped tight by copper elbow guards. Their chest was reinforced by an ornate copper cross. The cross itself held the Arkan symbol finely carved into it. There was no other possible way to go if he was going to get there before the message went out. Tuckin sucked in his gut and took a big sigh, hoping it would calm his nerves enough before approaching the Tizzo men. Turn back, sir, one of the guards said through his copper face mask. It resembled a sculpture of a very plain and emotionless man. What's happening here? I live on Hudseed. I must be getting home, Tuckin exclaimed with the aggravation on the back of every word. The Tizzo is gracing his people with his presence. Be happy for the opportunity to see your leader. One of the men said stepping forward to Tuckin, forcing Tuckin to step back from the barricade. Once our leader passes, the barricade shall be lifted. He isn't here yet. Why don't I pass through before his arrival? Tuckin said, solving a problem the soldiers didn't ask to be solved. Once our leader passes, the barricade shall be lifted. The other soldier repeated his companion sternly. As the soldier pushed Tuckin back from the road, their ears caught the latest from the loudspeaker. A letter from Tizzo Rainley to Elders of Severos. Tuckin felt his heart sink. He tried to plead with the soldiers to let him through, but the words didn't come. He was frozen with fear. Damn it, one of the soldiers growled. We have to regroup with the Tizzo before the city gets out of hand. What do we do with this one? The other asked, waving his hand toward Tuckin, who stood like a statue made of fear and regret. Likely only to join in, I suppose. Might as well take out one while we have him. 
the royal soldier said before wielding the stock of his rifle toward Tuckin and punching it into his forehead like a stamp. A small fine point of Tuckin welcomed the slumber. It was a moment in the last seven hours that wasn't riddled with anxiety. He dreamed of a blue butterfly, weaving through the darkness as if it was light. The butterfly guided him through this empty abyss for a while, never stopping to make sure he followed. Something about it seemed to know the unassuming man had a list for whatever knowledge, whatever clarity this butterfly could bring. Until they came to the end of their journey, and Tuckin gained no more knowledge or clarity as he did when he entered. Tuckin stood before two entities. One was a deer standing calm as a blue fire engulfed it. Next to the fiery deer sat a bear with a cloak of shadow washing half its face from the deer's flame. Behind the two in the distance, another bear slowly limped towards the entities with despair written on its face. Tuckin understood none of this. He watched the butterfly flurry around the entities joyfully before resting upon his nose. The wings blocked his vision. In the quiet darkness, he finally began to hear a noise once more. The sound of screams and destruction creeped closer and closer, whistles of patrolmen, glass smashing. His eyes opened and his head throbbed greater than it ever had before. All around Tuckin, he saw the scurrying of hasty feet. As he sat up, he could see a flurry of activity. The rioting had started. 